Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 47th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we get started, we have a few announcements to share with the group. Backed by popular demand, NCSEA's Making Energy Work webinar series will return this spring and continue throughout the summer where varying topics in clean energy from finance to policy and market insights will be discussed. Join hundreds of attendees from across the country to get the latest scoop on trending clean energy topics sweeping the industry. In case you missed them last year, we featured the likes of Amory Lovins, Jigger Shaw, and numerous other clean energy influencers across the field. Our first webinar is coming up on May 19th, where we'll be talking electric vehicles. It's free to register, so join us at makingenergywork.com. Next up, the 2021 State Energy Conference is just around the corner, coming up April 19th through the 22nd. If you haven't visited in the past, it's a great opportunity to receive continuing education credits, learn about new energy solutions and best practices, and connect with other energy industry professionals. Also, we're especially excited to announce that there will be a live recording of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast at this year's Virtual State Energy Conference. To find out more about the conference and to check us out live, visit ncenergyconference.com. Our friends over at Plugin NC are leading efforts on a campaign to have a specialty EV license plate designated here in North Carolina. In order to make this plate a reality, they need 500 applicants with the North Carolina Department of Motor Vehicles. They're currently at 321 and need 179 more. Do you currently drive an electric vehicle or know someone in your network that does? Please consider applying to receive the specialty electric vehicle license plate. You can find more information on the campaign and download the application at pluginnc.com. All right, so let's dive into the topic of today's pod, the military and clean energy. As you'll hear today, The military has long been an advocate and an ally to clean energy, recognizing the value the technology brings in ensuring energy security and resiliency. Today's episode will really help to reiterate the importance of energy to ensuring our forces are adequately prepared to carry out their mission at home and abroad. So without further ado, let's jump right on into it. Clean energy. Our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is the principal of a woman-owned small business providing consulting services for clean energy companies, nonprofits, local governments, and educational institutions on clean energy-related work in North Carolina and the Southeast. Our guest has extensive experience in public policy and communications around energy markets, technology, education, and finance in North Carolina and nationally. One of her clients is the North Carolina Military Business Center, where she works as the energy and environmental strategic industry professional. Squeaky clean listeners, please welcome 
Diane Cherry, principal of Diane Cherry Consulting, to the pod. Thanks, Matt. I'm excited to be part of this. Our next guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast serves as the executive director of the North Carolina Military Business Center and has done so since 2004. Prior to joining the NCMBC, our guest served for six years as the chief officer for support services with the city of Fayetteville. And prior to that, our guest served for nearly 22 years on active duty as a commissioned officer in the United States Army. A field artillery and foreign area officer, his numerous assignments included two tours in Greece, three years as an attache at the U.S. Embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus, and as an artillery officer in the Persian Gulf War. His final assignment was at Fort Bragg, where he served as a civil military operations staff officer for the 13th Airborne Corps and as deputy garrison commander. Squeaky clean listeners, please provide a warm welcome to Scott Dorney, executive director of the North Carolina Military Business Center. Well, thank you for the opportunity. This is actually the first podcast I've ever done, so I appreciate the opportunity. Fantastic. And I know that you are going to be a podcast pro here today. So we will go ahead and kick things off. Uh, so, so all right, uh, Scott, can you tell us just a little bit more about the North Carolina Military Business Center and the type of work you do here in the state of North Carolina? Sure, Matt, and appreciate the opportunity. We've appreciated years of partnership with NCSEA. We've been members of SEA, NCSEA, and I've had the privilege of being on the board. So we have a long history and a long relationship, and I want to thank you and NCSEA for your interest in this topic and in the Military Business Center, and we hope it's of interest to all the podcast listeners today. So the North Carolina Military Business Center, or as we call it, the NCMBC, it's a statewide component of the North Carolina Community College System. We actually have 15 offices across the state and a staff of 28, and we serve businesses in all 100 counties in North Carolina. Although we're part of the community college system and proud to be with our headquarters here at Fayetteville Technical Community College, we are at colleges across the state, as I said, and we're probably unlike most people in the community college. We are a business development organization. The mission of the NCMBC is to leverage military and other federal business opportunities to grow jobs, expand businesses, expand the economy, uh, raise the tax base, and at the end of the day, improve public services and quality of life for everybody in North Carolina. We were given uh, three goals by the General Assembly in 2004. We opened in 2005, and those include helping businesses in North Carolina win more federal contracts. Secondly, to help transitioning military people get employed here in North Carolina, because we see the transitioning military about 18,000 every year just from our bases in North Carolina as being a primary engine for economic development in the state. Thirdly, to help recruit more defense contractors to North Carolina, because if we're going to move the needle for defense contracting in our state, we got to help existing businesses win more contracts, and we have to recruit more major defense contractors in the state. In 2016, we took on an additional goal and uh, created the Defense Technology Transition Office to help perform technology transition and help small businesses develop in new technologies to uh, introduce those technologies to DOD. The programs that we execute in the Military Business Center are business development. Our team of business developers across the state are monitoring federal agencies, monitoring federal contract opportunities every day, 
using our database of about 60,000 businesses in the state to connect contract opportunities to those businesses. And then if they need assistance, helping them understand federal solicitations and write good proposals. We also do that with matchforce.org. It's the free state matching portal for federal contracts. I hope every business listening will sign up on matchforce.org. I mentioned our defense technology transition office, and we'll talk about that a little later. But I think another key component of our organization is our strategic industry professional team. So although we monitor contracts from many agencies and in many industries, we do have a strategic focus on key industries, which we define as those that have a lot of DOD demand and we have a lot of capacity in North Carolina. So we do not have a strategic focus on aircraft carriers because we don't make those in North Carolina. But we do have a strategic focus on military construction, food opportunities, aerospace, and several others, including energy and environmental. And uh, Diane is our uh, strategic industry professional for energy and environmental. And I would just wrap it up by saying uh, it's a great concept. Uh, It works. Uh, We have helped businesses in North Carolina win over 3,700 contracts since 2005 and brought in over $15 billion in federal contract revenues into the state since the Military Business Center opened in 2005. Yeah, those those numbers are, are nothing to sneeze at. So um, that is that is amazing to hear about all of the wonderful work that you all have done since your inception in 2005. And, and you had also mentioned and alluded to the partnership between the North Carolina Military Business Center and NCSEA over the years. And part of the reason why we have you on the podcast today is to talk about that intersection between military and clean energy. Um, so to, to level set, I think it's important for our audience to understand the importance of the military to North Carolina's economy and the scale of investments we have here through our bases. So can you tell us a little bit about the type of presence our different military branches have in the state of North Carolina? Absolutely. And, uh, uh, and that presence is extensive. Uh, Some folks may not know that North Carolina is definitely a military state. In fact, we have the third highest number of active duty military of any state in the country. It's California, Texas, and then North Carolina. We have over 130,000 active duty uh, military personnel on our state at six major military installations, Fort Bragg, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, our Coast Guard base at Elizabeth City, and three Marine installations at Camp Lejeune, New River, and Cherry Point. But what folks may not know is we have over 100 National Guard and Reserve facilities in North Carolina. So the military is all over our state from uh, the far west all the way to the coast. So this is not an eastern North Carolina phenomenon only. Uh, We have several different types of facilities in our state. Uh, At Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, we have the Fleet Readiness Center East, which does aviation uh, maintenance, depot level maintenance on Marine and Navy aircraft from all over the all over the uh, the United States. Also, the Coast Guard base at Elizabeth City is actually the aviation logistics center for the Coast Guard. So every Coast Guard helicopter, whether it's stationed in Alaska, Miami or anywhere else in between, comes to Elizabeth City, North Carolina for depot level maintenance. So we have those industrial capabilities in the state, but we also just have a a large presence of very 
significant traditional military presence. So Fort Bragg is about 10% of the entire army. There's over 50,000 active duty people at Fort Bragg. Also has very significant headquarters. Uh, there's a four-star headquarters there in U.S. Army Forces Command, numerous three-star commands, a Joint Special Operations Command, U.S. Army uh, Special Operations Command. So it's a very diverse, very large installation with a lot of energy requirements and a lot of energy need that I know we'll talk about. So that presence of the military has a huge economic impact on our state. In fact, uh, it's about $66 billion a year and about 12% of our state GDP and over 500,000 jobs in our state are actually impacted by the military. So how does that translate to contract and business opportunities for folks listening to this podcast? Well, federal contracting in, in North Carolina, 2020 was a very good year. It was a bad year for a lot of things, but for federal contracting, it was exceptional. In fact, it was a record year. Uh, businesses in North Carolina executed over $9.5 billion in federal prime contracts, which was a $2.5 billion increase over 2019. And if we just look at Department of Defense prime contracts, it was over $6 billion executed in our state, which was about a billion and a half dollar increase over 2019. And that was driven by covid We have a lot of medical requirements, the VA, pharmaceutical industry, medical supply uh, uh, contracts, and also construction. It was a very big year for Hurricane Florence recovery work in North Carolina. But we had uh, federal prime contractors in 97 of 100 counties in our state and Department of Defense prime contractors in 83 counties. So that goes back to my previous comment. Uh, even the impact of the military from a business perspective. It's not just an Eastern North Carolina thing. This happens in counties all over North Carolina. Uh, Most folks don't know that when you drive on I-40 in Buncombe County, you go right past a company that makes the guidance system for all cruise missiles in the U.S. military. So uh, this happens in Western North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, and everywhere in between. It's an extremely significant part of our economy. Yeah, I... I just learned a lot there that I did not know. So I will have to be on the lookout when I'm uh, driving over to Asheville in the, in the western part of the state. Um, so, you know, Scott, as you mentioned, these these installations in North Carolina are essentially small cities, and I wouldn't even consider them small cities. Uh, they have a significant presence here in the state and, and do have significant energy needs as well. Um, so, you know, bringing us back to that intersection between clean energy and the military, I'd like to pitch this over to Diane. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the importance of resiliency to these installations and some of the progress that's already been made to date in regards to clean energy and energy efficiency on some of these installations? Sure. Thanks, Matt, for having me. And um, I think you can understand now why Scott is such a great executive director of the North Carolina Military Business Center. He is a great um cheerleader for the program. So back to um, energy in the military, the military sort of mission of um, readiness and energy resilience and security cannot be um, taught. They're all linked together. So in other words, you can't have mission readiness and not have resilience and not have security all at the same time. Um, And so one of the things that's really been a like a struggle now is trying to get to some of the um, ability to have resilience 
both because of the environment that we find ourselves in. And by that, I mean, we're exposed to natural disasters. So, you know, Camp Lejeune has had, I don't know, I think something like more than 14 um, really natural disasters and hurricanes uh, going back 15, 20 years. And so that's impacting um, operation supply and as well as the fact that um, the Army and the Marine Corps have a 14-day um, requirement for um, operational readiness, which is really difficult to meet, to be honest with you. So there's that piece. And then there's the whole transitioning out of um, many, many old facilities, um, both to get them up to standard um, that if we were outside the base, we would say that has already been met. But given the size of them, a lot of the energy savings performance contract um, projects are coming to do things like improve LED lighting and doing the things to get them up to um, where we're using less energy because of the, the sheer size of them. But we're also seeing a lot of um, energy technologies like um, Camp Lejeune has a um, microgrid project for their training facility. Um, so what's hard, if you will, is marrying the fact that we're trying to upgrade all of the energy efficiency measures through these ESCO projects that Duke Energy has, that Amoresco has been a sub to. And also at the same time, be providing energy through that 14-day downtime that they have to meet, plus install these new energy technologies. And frankly, with the size of them and the lack of staff and lack of funding, it's a very challenging um, task. And, and, and so, you know, to your point about, you know, uh, some of the natural disasters and, uh and other things that have come through, you know, Eastern North Carolina and have impacted some of our installations here. I, I am curious as to whether some of those events that have come through are part of the reason that the military has uh, come around to the idea of resiliency and clean energy. Um, and, and Scott, I'm, I'm curious, based on your background in the military, you know, what what was kind of the impetus for the military exploring clean energy as a path to some of their energy solutions on, on different bases? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. Really, there's a lot of reasons behind it. So as you alluded to, uh, I had the opportunity to be on the garrison and installation staff at Fort Bragg and then the deputy garrison commander for the installation in the late 90s. And that'll ring a bell to some of your listeners you know, 96, 97, 98 with Hurricane Fran, Hurricane uh, Floyd, and numerous other ones. Uh, you know, and I remember uh, when those uh, hit, setting up liaison with all the different counties around Fort Bragg and trying to help them meet their needs. And and one thing I remember is going to Lillington and, and they wanted us to pump their water because their water plant was underwater and didn't have any electricity. And we provided generators to pump all the water in Harnett County for about a week. Uh, after Hurricane Fran. So, yeah, so there were those uh, natural disasters. And as uh, as Diane has stated, really, when it really comes down to, it's all about the mission. I mean, the military will try to meet other interests, certainly policy goals of the United States uh, and the administration. But number one factor is always mission. These are deployment bases. They are training and worldwide deployment bases for our contingency forces that are 
have to be able to be deployed worldwide on moment's notice. So whether that's uh, 18th Airborne Corps and the 82nd Airborne Division out of Fort Bragg or the 2nd Marine Division, the 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force out of Camp Lejeune, you know, it's absolutely critical that we have 100% energy security at these installations. And those hurricanes were very challenging. I remember losing most of our power for days. So maintaining that mission capability resilience and energy security is always going to be the number one factor. I would also say that uh, there are other factors, though, too, and one of them is cost. Uh, Our military installations are the largest energy consumers uh, in in our state, and uh, they have an interest in cost mitigation. If you think about it, every dollar that our base or our uh, military commands spend on energy uh, is one last dollar that they spend on training and on equipment and on uh, preparation for deployment worldwide. So uh, I would also mention, let's not forget as we focus on installation energy, that there's a great need for expeditionary energy, the kind of energy that our military units would use at forward operating bases overseas, where some of our heaviest losses in Afghanistan were generated by fuel convoys, bringing fuel to our forward operating bases. So it's high cost proposition. It's high cost in dollars at our military installations here in the States, and it can be a high cost in lives as well. So Fort Bragg's recognized this and Camp Lejeune as well. So even when I was at Fort Bragg in the late 90s, we've had an energy saving performance contract on Fort Bragg since the mid 1990s to help reduce those energy costs uh, whether it's through uh, facilities, large facilities, or metering on houses. Uh, and those didn't exist before in the early 90s and prior to that. And I guess the third factor, other than cost and mission, that I would mention is stewardship. So at the risk of sounding corny, uh, whether it's an energy or environmental stewardship, our bases really are leaders in environmental protection, endangered species uh, promotion, and energy certainly no exceptions. So uh, certainly there are cost and mission factors, uh, but our bases are, are always been, at least since the 1990s, on the front edge of, of technology. Whether they get into being test beds or deployment uh, catalysts for new technologies and clean energy, uh, that's yet to be seen. It's happened a little bit in the past, but certainly those other three factors that we talked about are constants, and they're always going to be a factor to drive our basis to reducing their energy costs and looking for good, smart ways to do that. So it sounds like our installations have, have really been ahead of their time in, in looking at energy performance contracting, energy efficiency, um, lighting retrofits, et cetera, especially given that they are some of the largest ener- energy consumers here in the state. I am curious um, about maybe some of the limitations or challenges our installations have encountered here in North Carolina related to the deployment of additional clean energy resources or energy efficiency measures. Right now, the Department of Defense has what's called an installation energy security plan that is required for all the bases. And right now, the Marine Corps is the first out of the out of the um, all of them to do it. And the whole point is to identify and prioritize energy security gaps, solutions, implementation plans and measure performance. And actually, they're going to be judged against that. And it's also tied to this 14-day, um, you know, downtime issue. And so part of that gets into what they're allowed to do, what they can't do. 
Um, so definitely the, um, the vertically integrated um, system that we have energy here um, in North Carolina is something that I would point to um, in, one, in one way for this. So like when we have an ESCO project and someone wins it, you know, like Duke and they have their sub Amoresco, it's not something that's allowed to be shared out to other people as part of that. Um, and that's both from the federal government through to how that's administered. Um, when you look at places like Fort Hood in Texas, they are able to do more. Um, there's other issues with Texas and, you know, the whole energy issue related to the weather event. Let's just put that aside and ERCOT. But um, they do have an easier time deploying um, clean energy. Um, I would also say that having worked on a couple of local government clean energy plans as part of my clean energy practice, um, being able to procure directly from a renewable energy provider is much more challenging here. Um, none of the green source advantage um, set aside for energy for military was even um, provided, was even used. And um, the project that I'm doing right now with a couple of local governments re has required um, consultant time plus multiple staff at the city level to be able to navigate that. And I can tell you from having experience with the bases, they don't have the staff to navigate that process. So to be able to do anything to procure directly from an asset is, is just, it's not surprising to me that they didn't take advantage of it. The other thing that I would say is a real difficulty is a lot of times the bases have put in diesel power, backup power. Um, when they've gone down, they've replaced that power with other diesel. And so now that they're trying to, and particularly I can think of a couple of bases that are trying to get away from diesel, all of the operating and maintenance um, ability is toward that same system. So as you move to other systems, other innovative clean energy systems, the maintenance staff on the base has to learn as well how to monitor and take care of that. And so um, that is another challenge. And I'll, and I'll just stop there because I've kind of laid a lot of things out. But I think it's both the dealing with the security, dealing with the um, energy market that we're we find ourselves, the inability to sort of um, do projects within the construct of the utility because of the difficulty of the transaction of it. And then in addition, once you want to then trade out the diesel generators for other technology, you have to have the ability to want to be able to maintain that. And that comes with staff in addition to the energy managers on the bases and the knowledge of how to do that. And, and that's really daunting, frankly. Um, and it's, it's amazing that they've done as you know, as well as they've done, given the lack of funding sometimes and the fact that maybe they don't have as much experience hands-on um, with this and the procurement policies of the military. I think those are all great points, Diane. I, I would point out, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think I mentioned we've had the pleasure in the Military Business Center working very closely with NCSEA for many years. In fact, we co-hosted Energy Symposia uh, one in Raleigh in 2013, and then one in 2015, and one in 2017, in conjunction with our infrastructure summit that we do in Wilmington every October. And in fact, we did a virtual environmental and energy track at the summit this past October, even though unfortunately it had to be virtual. And I would tell you that the military um, 
and the director, it's a public works, the public work offices at the various installations have always engaged willingly in those symposiums. They, they have a genuine interest in clean energy and, 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 and in, you know, maintaining their energy security and energy resilience. So I, I first want to make sure everybody understands the, the military is on board and to Diane's point, they'll do all they can within the limitation of budget and staffing and whatnot. And I think that they've really done some terrific uh, projects. Um, we look at the solar PV project at Camp Lejeune that was done by Duke Energy. I think it's 17 megawatt facility right inside the base. Uh, a lot of new construction uh, at the bases and particularly at Camp Lejeune uh, incorporated uh, solar in new barracks and new uh, headquarters. So there, it, it was heavily done in new construction. Our bases are saddled with a lot of old infrastructure and a lot of the ESPC work has been to try to upgrade a lot of that infrastructure. I had a picture when I was the deputy garrison commander of my wall, on my wall of Fort Bragg in 1926, and a lot of which was open in 1918. And a lot of the buildings in that picture are still being utilized, including the office I was sitting in. In fact, there were wood water pipes still in the ground. So they've got uh, infrastructure that dates back to the earliest 20th century. So I think they've done a great job in incorporating uh, clean energy into new projects and, and doing their darndest to, to uh, become more particularly energy efficient with, uh, with older structures. I will say that I think the military, well, I know, has really expressed an unwillingness to not comply with state regulations. I know that's a double negative, but uh, even though they are federal installations and they have the authority to do so, including limitation on third-party sales, uh, and that's been a break on, on some clean energy de uh, deployment and, uh, and alternative generation sources on the basis, which I know we have partners that would love to do that, the base would love to do it, but they are compliant with state regulations regarding and limitations regarding third party sales, even though if they wanted to, they probably could pursue those uh, because of their federal authority, them being federal installations. But I think they've done an outstanding job through other means and partnerships with Duke Energy uh, to help meet their energy security needs and at the same time diversify and improve their, their energy uh, resilience and security. And what I find interesting about both of y'all's remarks there is, you know, how how interconnected or how relatable some of the challenges the military faces are to the challenges of many of the other industries uh, that, you know, we work with here at NCSCA, right? Market structures being a challenge that our municipal members and corporate members are also facing here in North Carolina. And that's why I think it's incredibly important to have such a wide and diverse coalition of organizations that are all working towards the same issues uh, or same solutions to the issues that we're all equally having here across the state. Um, so I, I just find that really interesting to find how relatable it is that some of the challenges the military is facing are also some of the challenges that many other different industries in the state are also facing as well. On that note, uh, you know, Scott, you did talk a lot about uh, as well um, some of the projects that uh, have already been deployed on bases across the state, some of the solar installations. I, I'm curious from y'all's perspective, what do you see as the biggest opportunities that lie ahead for energy and the military? And we can start with Scott on this one. Well, uh, 
I think everybody's pretty aware of the offshore wind uh, uh, development and study and, and uh, supply chain study that's being done. And I think that deserves some comment because uh, I think the military has gotten a little bit of a bad rap on where they are on wind. Uh, there's really two issues with the military. You know, first of all, low level flight routes, obviously, you know, wind farms have to be compatible and in places where uh, military flight routes are not negatively impacted. And people don't realize, but most of North Carolina is there's a tremendous number of low level flight uh, routes, bombing ranges in eastern North Carolina that are just critical, both onshore and offshore. Uh, for military units at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base and also out of Tidewater, Virginia, and other places that use those ranges. So that's number one. The second thing is radar signature of the, uh, of the uh, wind production facilities, the windmills themselves. You know, we have to make sure that, that where they're sited is consistent with being able to maintain the security of our coastline uh, and not interfering with, with radar. So but the DOD has established a clearinghouse to review projects. And I think that that process has been very successful. You know, everybody can be a little cautious about that because we don't want uh, something approved today to actually impact the future of our bases uh, down the line when there might be another BRAC. So we don't want to create vulnerabilities for ourselves. But there is tremendous opportunity for wind onshore, offshore. Uh, Texas, uh, Fort Hood, Texas, the one of the largest area-wise military bases in the state and arrival for Fort Bragg is the largest army base personnel-wise uh, is a huge user of, of uh, off-site uh, wind. So uh, the military is not adverse or averse to wind. It just has to be done right. And in fact, they've also done some really uh, exciting things in the floating solar project at Fort Bragg. I think it's a good example of that. I think it's very important to note the uh, the role that the military helped to take in, in moving forward North Carolina's first onshore wind farm in the northeastern part of the state and being a strong supporter of that project and moving forward and making sure that we were constructing that project in a smart way that was mindful of the interaction between uh, that project and the operations of the military in that part of the state, which demonstrated that we can successfully have onshore wind and military coexist in the state of North Carolina. So I just think it's it's incredibly important to, to note that that partnership that happened just a few years ago when we had that uh, project installed in northeastern North Carolina. So moving on to a topic, um, probably, you know, a top of mind for folks in thinking about um, the change in administration at the federal level um, and kind of the overall sort of stance and position towards clean energy and the momentum we have in that front. I am curious, um, from, from y'all's perspective, uh, what sort of momentum do you think that we'll have on our side coming from the federal government, specifically as it relates to the military? Well, uh, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it's a bit of an unknown still. So we have a tendency to look at the uh, Obama-Biden administration as maybe a roadmap for what we could expect under the Biden-Harris administration, but that may or may not be a, a valid assumption. So I think this would, uh, you know, we've seen some recent indications, and I'll let Diane talk a little bit about ARPA-E, uh, but I think at the macro level, you know, we're all sort of expecting some reduction in defense spending. You know, I've heard about up to a 10% reduction in defense spending. And I guess going back to the topic you just talked about and Diane talked about a few minutes ago, 
you know, we have to remember these installations, they're, they're large cities. I mean, there are 50, 60,000 people come to work at Fort Bragg every day. Most of them live off post, but they work on post. Some of them live on post. A lot of them live on post. Uh, so these are large installations. Um, and when folks hear that the, the military has a $600 billion budget or a $700 billion budget, they tend to think, well, why can't they do all this clean energy stuff? Why can't they put priority into that? But, you know, that money goes in a lot of different uh, places. Large weapon system acquisition, maintaining our forces, maintaining readiness, doing training, you know, uh, maintaining our installations and upgrading our installations and even making them more energy secure is not the uh, the primary number one item on the defense budget every year. So how any reduction in defense spending will affect our installations is a bit of an unknown. But I'd say it's also fairly true that our installations have been bill payers in the past to maintain other major programs. So as we went through sequestration, uh, about six or seven years of sequestration in the federal budget, you know, we did see impact on our uh, installation spending and reduction in some construction programs that really have an impact on maintaining those installations and doing uh, unique and important things like maintaining our energy uh, security. Uh, but at the same time, our installation missions haven't changed. They are platforms for training, deployment, worldwide contingency. So energy security does remain a major interest. Also expect greater emphasis, I think, under this new administration on climate change and on clean energy, uh, as it did during the Obama administration when we saw our services start up uh, major energy offices and put in place some really amazing large clean energy uh, programs and large contracts, uh, which we even had an event here in North Carolina around an army uh, clean energy uh, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract that is in place and is used to create large uh, clean energy projects across the United States. Uh, whether we'll see that expand as it did somewhat during the Obama administration where DOD was looked at as a potential test bed for new technologies, or at least a place where we could deploy clean energy in a big way as a catalyst for more commercial de development well, and deployment, well, that's yet to be determined. But I think we're in a better place, too, in regard to clean energy than where we were at, the, say, the beginning of the Obama administration, where we were really looking to our military installations in a way to be a catalyst for deployment uh, on a commercial scale in our commercial industry and residential industry. I think all of that having been said, mission remains number one maintaining energy uh, resilience and energy security at our installations so they can do their job is always going to be the driving factor. And if we can do that, I think we will see a trend in this current administration towards more um, clean energy projects. And, and Diane, maybe you want to comment on, on ARPA-E and what's going on right now in federal funding. So, um, you know, Biden has a $2 trillion climate change program. And uh, what that looks like, the details of that has not been sort of unveiled. So it's not clear, you know, do we have a national carbon strategy, for example, that everyone has to meet right now? It's just state by state patchwork of what's happening. And, you know, our neighbor to the north, Virginia, has 
very clear guidance on what their clean um, energy goals are that are legislatively mandated. We don't have that here. We have military facilities that are federally connected within a state. And so how does jurisdiction work? All of that is completely unclear to me. But what we can see is individual changes within DOE, for example. So um, ARPA-E is the DARPA equivalent of energy technology um, investment. It was started under Bush, but it was made kind of, we've now had, I think, five funding cycles of that. And $100 million open solicitation for that is due, I think, in May, uh, April 6th. And we just had a webinar this week with um, Dr. Mark Johnson, who used to be at NC State, who's now at Clemson, but spent several years at ARPA-E under the Obama administration evaluating proposals. And the idea is it's a very simple uh, four-page concept, but if you think about climate change and whatever, you know, we have neutrality by 2035 or 2050, the last 20% of that carbon neutrality goal is very unclear how we'll meet that. And it's going to require generate, it's going to require an entire set of technologies that maybe we don't know today. And so ARPA-E funding is a really important venture for us to invest in things that maybe change the method of how we get somewhere to change the trajectory, if you will. And so um, what was nice about this is we had a webinar. We have a lot of businesses here and universities that are interested in finding their way toward that funding. When you have $100 million to, to set out, obviously you're going to have you know, people interested. So this $100 million is larger than most. Um, you have some changes in um, deployment, but not a very clear strategy overall. And I then also would put that toward, you know, where does North Carolina fit? So do we have a mandated, um, you know, goal that we have to meet? When we have Executive Order 80, it's a soft goal. And so, you know, does the military even fit in that? Probably not. So um, it's very, so where I'm going is it's very hard to kind of watch that all sort of bubble down to a, a, a particular military installation. But I, I think that if, Funding can come as compares to cuts to where if energy does become, you know, connected as much within the military readiness, you know, mission critical way, you know, it's things like AMR technology and being able to see facility buildings that, you know, which are the most energy inefficient, you know, bases may not have that deployed. And that's a really important technology to understand to make energy efficiency investments. So you can kind of imagine the laundry list any particular base can come up with to where they could spend money to meet some of their energy needs. Um, and so whether we see more of that funding or not, I don't know. And what we see in terms of a carbon strategy or a state strategy to where a base has to commit to, I don't know. And whether we have energy market reform to change how we are done, I don't know. So it's like an, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But um, at least we have pockets and pieces where we can see what our mission is, which is to try to make sure the businesses that are part of our um, database are aware of opportunities that they can then put in to, to make, you know, investment decisions and, and build business here. And, and related to ARPA-E, right, we, we already have a number of projects that have been funded here in the state between our universities and, and different businesses here. So some of that funding has already flowed into the state, and there are opportunities for more of that to come here as well. 
um, which is absolutely fantastic given uh, the the sort of brain knowledge and expertise that we have between the universities and the research triangle area, and given the fact that we're already well equipped to monetize and be ready to go into the the contracting phase with some of those technologies, given all the connections that we have here with the North Carolina Military Business Center and the installations that we have, right? So closing the full loop um, from you know technology development through the actual contracting and getting that into the hands of our, our military members um, is that full cycle that we are ready to, to be prepared for in, in North Carolina, which is fantastic. And since we were just talking about ARPA-E, uh, the North Carolina Military Business Center has been working on similar efforts of your own here in the state to drive economic development and ensure our military is well-equipped to handle any and all of the situations that could arise in the future. Um, so, Scott, could you talk a little bit about those efforts? Yeah, absolutely. So folks that know the Military Business Center probably know that we monitor federal contract opportunities and send those out to businesses. And that's that's really the heart of what we do. Uh, but we decided and, and, and realized really as early as 2009, but didn't have the funding to put in it until 2016, that we had to work on the flip side of that coin. We had to identify businesses in North Carolina that were developing new technologies that have defense or other federal application. Because a lot of the entrepreneurs, small businesses that are developing the most innovative uh, technologies don't realize that they may have defense applications or are easily frustrated when they try to navigate DOD or any other federal agency to find out how to sell that technology or get support for that technology through DOD. What really changed in around 2016 was DOD got a lot more interested in realizing that the pace of technology development was much faster in the commercial world and in academia than it was in federal laboratories. And they needed to really change their thinking and be open to submitted technologies out of the commercial sector uh, that would have defense applications. So they created the Defense Innovation Unit. Our military services created rapid capabilities offices and at the same time, we created the Defense Technology Transition Office within the Military Business Center. So I would just advise any business that's listening that is developing a new technology around clean energy, any other environmental type of programs, and even if you remotely think that the bases are installations or our deployed forces would have a use for those technologies, please contact DEFTEC and they will help you evaluate the, the defense application and navigate that system. I think about existing um, innovation uh, funding programs. We've already mentioned ARPA-E, but I know we have a company, Windlift, in the triangle that uh, is a major recipient of small business innovative research grants for developing technologies to support our deployed uh, soldiers in forward operating bases. So we already have companies that are receiving federal funding for innovation and technology development. Uh, but if businesses have been going that course alone and developing those technologies, I would really encourage them to contact the Military Business Center, specifically our DEFTEC office, and get involved with doing that. At the end of the day, what the Military Business Center is all about is overcoming obstacles for businesses to engage in the federal marketplace. So whether it's helping them understand the red tape of federal procurement, 
or navigating ARPA-E or introducing new technologies to DOD. We are a resource and we're a component of really what we feel is the best infrastructure in the country. Here in North Carolina, the best infrastructure of any state to help businesses get started, to grow and to leverage new markets and to introduce those technologies to new customers. So we're happy to do that. And we look forward to partnering with NCSEA at any time to help achieve those objectives and grow the defense economy in our state. Well, I couldn't think of a better note to end our podcast recording on than that. So um, I just wanted to thank you, Scott and Diane, for joining us on today's episode and, and thank the North Carolina Military Business Center for your partnership with NCSEA and bringing that military voice to the important conversations around clean energy in North Carolina. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Great. We appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having us, Matt. And Diane, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thanks very much for having us. All right. So my key takeaway from the conversation today is the importance of the military in achieving our clean energy goals here in the state of North Carolina. As Scott mentioned, our military bases are essentially large cities with large energy demand. In his comments, he mentioned that North Carolina ranks third in the country in number of active duty military along with 12% of our state GDP associated with that military activity. These installations can help carry us into the energy future, and excitingly, they've already begun to showcase their commitments towards clean energy long before many other sectors of the economy. These bases made investments in energy performance contracting and energy efficiency long before many others, and are again showcasing their commitment to innovation and clean energy with projects like the floating solar farm at Fort Bragg, which, by the way, if you haven't heard about it yet, is a 1.1 megawatt solar farm located on Big Muddy Lake and will be paired with a 2 megawatt energy storage system as well. We'll include a link to the press release in this week's show notes so that you can check out that project. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. But before you go, it's time for the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of those communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we're gallivanting down to the southeastern part of the state to visit our friends in Duplin County. And to lead us on this journey is NCSEA's own Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. Well, that was a fun premiere tour in Duplin County in our previous podcast segment. But now we're going to head just a bit to the southwest, staying in southeastern North Carolina over to Bladen County. Some clean energy notes about Bladen County. According to NCSEA's Renewable Energy Database, there are 23 solar installations and one biomass installation in Bladen County, all of which account for a capacity of over 190 megawatts. These include four systems that are larger than 30 megawatts, which you can find in the towns of Tar Heel, Bladenboro, and Ivanhoe. And that capacity is enough to power almost 23,000 homes. So we're talking a significant amount of output here. 
Bladen County tops the list of counties in NCSEA's most recent increased North Carolina county tax revenue from solar report by having the highest tax revenue percent increase on land installed with solar. The increase of property tax paid on participating parcels after solar participation is $488,551 or a 1,554% increase. Again, that's a real tangible benefit to the coffers of Bladen County. Next time you're taking a drive through the area, know that solar is helping to support the first responders, the schools, and other municipal benefits that residents of the county rely on. We'll end this tour with some more fun facts about Bladen County. The county seat is Elizabethtown. Bladen County is the home of a vacation favorite, White Lake, as well as home to Singletary Lake. Also, did you know that Bladen County is home to the oldest bald cypress tree on record with an age of 2,624 years? And Bladen County has been named the mother of counties because all or part of 55 of North Carolina's current counties were formed from Bladen County's original land. So if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that at one time you may have been a Bladen County resident yourself. So while Bladen County was the birthplace to many of the counties across North Carolina, it could also be considered the mother of clean energy as well, given the amount of solar and biomass projects we've seen deployed in that part of the state. And that's going to be a wrap for Bladen County. Next time you're on your way to the coast, make sure you swing through and give them an old-fashioned squeaky clean hello. And that's it for this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. For the ecotourists out there, it's definitely worth a trip down to Bladen to see one of the oldest trees in the eastern United States. On that note, did you know that some bourbon distilleries actually use salvaged bald cypress wood to make the open tanks they use to ferment the mash? Follow us as we visit other projects and counties from throughout the state as part of this ongoing series. If you have a story or project you'd like us to cover, drop us a line at info at energync.org. Right, let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 47 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the Friends of the Pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.